people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Minä näin hänet muutama päivä sitten näyttelyssä. Hän muistuttaa Saara Tuusta. Hän kuoli 1976, kahdeksan vuotta ennen kuin sinä synnyit. Saara Maija Katriina muutti Helsinkiin 1960. Katsos, me voisimme luoda menneisyyden henkilön kuvan elävällä mallilla. Nerokasta. Sinustahan tulee loistava saara. Myöhemmin hän oppi liikkumankin ja alkoi strippausen. Saara Turunen kuoli junaonnettomuudessa vuonna 1976. Minä haluan saada tähän ohjelmaan ehdottomasti paremman kuoleman kuin jotain dramaattisen. Me vaihdamme auton junaksi. Katsos näin. Se kulkee pitkin kiskoja vääjäämättömästi kuin kuulema. Ja siinä tragedia on saanut päätöksensä. Epäselvyys on kuin sokeria muuraisena. Siihen kertyy koko roskaa väki. Mitäs hänellä aiot tehdä? En tiedä. Ja muistat toki, jos uskallat mennä kissen kanssa sänkyyn, ettei hän ole viime vuosisadalta. Pus, pus. Sinun tarvitsee vain valita. Haluatko elävän vai kuolleen? Raukka. Raukka. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Eric Peterson. Good to be here. On this special episode, we are looking at an anomalous picture from Finland, 1969's A Time of Roses, directed by Risto Jarva. It's a low-grade science fiction film set in the distant year of 2012, where the government is a meritocracy. We focus in on Remo Lapalainen, a historian who wants to know what the world of 1969 was really like. He decides to recreate the past by creating a likeness of a woman who died in 1976 via her contemporary double kisse to act as a substitute. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I'm not sure if we'll be able to sort this movie out. If you want to listen to this episode before you watch the movie, that might be a good idea. Otherwise, go ahead. It's got a nice, beautiful restoration from Deaf Crocodile out there on Blu-ray. Pick it up. Enjoy it. There's lots of good extras, but just putting that out there. Sam, before Deaf Crocodile put this out, had you seen this movie before? And if so, what did you think? 
I had not seen it before their release, but I love them. I work with them a lot and trust their taste and knew that if they discovered some wonderful finished gem that I probably would love it. And it's great. And Eric, how about yourself? I had not heard of this until now. I'm very interested in films from Finland, Sweden, Norway. So when I heard about this, definitely interested in checking it out. Yeah, like I said, this was an anomaly. There haven't been a lot of science fiction films from Finland over the years. I think you can count them on maybe two hands if you're lucky. Definitely one. But we're talking like the entire history of Finnish cinema. There's not a lot of sci-fi. And this is one of those odd ones where, like I said, set in the year 2012, they're looking at 69 all the way up to about 76. And you get to hear a lot of predictions, basically, of what we think is going to happen between the years of 69 when this was made all the way up to 2012. Some of them are dead on. Some of them are interesting. This whole idea of talking via a computer interface or that you can actually see the other person that you're talking to. I know that's complete science fiction. Maybe one of these days we'll get to video calls, but otherwise they're pretty spot on with some of this stuff. Yeah, I was tempted to put on the twiggy eyeliner mascara that (laughs) that she wears when she's on so many of those video calls. Holy cow. Yeah, I'm sitting on a clear plastic chair right now. All of my furniture is clear plastic, so I'm ready for the future. I couldn't decide if the eye makeup was uh, Clockwork Orange, Alice Cooper, or Turbo Negro, so... I think it's supposed to be an homage to Twiggy, who had a similar haircut and makeup going on at that time. But one of the things I really liked about this film is this premise that you're going to basically make your film look like it's set in the late 60s, but say that it's the future is wild. And if you watch this back to back with something like Blow Up, You'd see so many stylistic overlaps. So it's just amazing that it's supposed to be the future. It kind of reminds me of Alphaville as well, because this is, like I said, low-grade science fiction. We're putting a lot of reliance on the actual production design, like I said, the furniture, the gadgets that they have, but a lot, too, on the buildings and just using the buildings. And I know we've talked about things like Total Recall, and shooting that down in Mexico and using the brutalist architecture as a stand-in for the future. There are a lot of really great shots of buildings in this, and especially uses of buildings as backgrounds and presenting things as if this were more futuristic. I don't think we see vehicles too much, if at all. I know they take the train a lot, which is an interesting convention, the way that they have this kind of rear-projected, it almost looks like a I know it's not a green screen, but I guess it's a rear projection. And then the actor's shaking and holding on to a pole at the same time. And you're just like, okay, that's a really cheap effect to make us think that this person's on a train, but it's effective. I think all of these things are effective to a point, if not completely effective. And I love that sci-fi and the cheap thing that they're doing. So one of the films this reminded me of is the uh, 2001 film CQ from Roman Coppola. CQ is about a filmmaker in 1969 who was a special effects guy on a science fiction movie. Through the course of the movie, gets promoted to director. And he's using things like shooting at an extreme angle with a salad bowl 
to simulate a building in the future the way that maybe Planet of the Apes used, or one of the Planet of the Apes films used, was it Century City? Like any of those late 60s films that used up-to-date modern architecture to uh, suggest a city in the future. And in CQ, it's set in 1969 to 1970, and it's about the change in technology and filmmaking during that time period. And it starts off with this like 60s cheesy science fiction film, and it moves towards him making a personal film that's more like a 70s film. So there's a lot of echoes in this film of CQ. And I have to wonder if Roman Coppola saw it because I know that very much in his commentary on the DVD of CQ, he references a lot of the things that he was inspired by. So that and that other thing with the architecture is how it's juxtaposed with nature at various points in time. We see a lot of sterile living spaces or cities or these buildings. And then we juxtapose that with several scenes that are in parks or at the lake where we can see a city far off in the distance or a field. And I think that's probably intentional to talk about the difference between nature versus what's being built as society at that time. Totally agree. It actually reminded me more of Czech cinema from this period than anything I would think of as Finnish. And some of those nature scenes, especially towards the end where they're in this relationship and it's like he's getting further and further away from maybe his original mission to make a documentary about this woman. And I totally agree that I think those nature scenes are reminding both the audience and the protagonist that maybe there are more things in this rigid society that they think is this utopia. I can totally see that. Even things like end of August at the Ozone Hotel, where you've got the pastoral and that's this post-apocalyptic type of world. I can see where you're coming from with the Czech comparison, definitely. And Polish, too, for sure. Yeah. So the geographically and time-wise, the movie this most reminded me of was Shame by Bergman, which deals with artists and their what their role is during the time of a conflict. Obviously, the backdrop of both of these films is definitely Vietnam. We have helicopters, we got military, we got protests, civil unrest, all the things going on around the world that they're looking back at. And all of that at this time is definitely tied into Vietnam. And uh, Bergman's film is surreal and it's not as plot driven or as linear as some of his other work. And it definitely... I got those vibes for sure. And that was made in 1968. So that would have been the year before. And that's just Finland and Sweden have a long historical tie to each other, mainly because Sweden controlled Finland for a long time. Yeah, I was going to say tie is a generous term. Yes, it is. (laughs) But at this point in time, both were independent nations. And I guess they had maybe a detente, I guess you could say. And as time has gone on, that Obviously, the cultural exchange between the two nations has is, is become stronger. But in 1969, both of them definitely would have been worried about not just Vietnam, but because Finland borders the Soviet Union, that if Vietnam became a sprawling hot war, that Finland is right there as the first domino in Northern Europe that Russia can reach out and touch. It's interesting that you saw it as reflecting back on Vietnam, whereas I think partly because of some of the writing and researching I'm doing right now, I think I saw it as more a reflection of the 
global and definitely European protests in 67 and 68 and how there's this very real optimism that things are going to change. And I love some of what they do with, oh, this is what happened in society after 1968 and 1969. And we're living in this egalitarian paradise. It reminded me of what Star Trek does in a little bit, where it says, we're in the future. We have no more racism, no more poverty, no more class issues. And there's so much in this about how we We've resolved all these class issues. And then at the end of the film, it's actually. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say that the big conflict in the film seems to be class issues. It's very much Eloy and Morlocks kind of a setup. This film and every film from 1968, it feels. (laughs) And I will say that for me personally, the lens of Vietnam comes largely from having grown up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where it literally did not feel like the cultural fight over Vietnam ended until sometime in the 90s. So during my formative years, I was constantly hearing about, we stopped the war, Vietnam. This is where the Stooges come from. This is where the MC5 moved to. SDS started here. The weather underground is tied to here. So all of that kind of stuff was still in the culture. And while maybe my parents weren't involved with that, definitely a lot of the adults I grew up around and school teachers were 100% involved with that. I will say, and feel free to contradict me, but this is not an easy film to watch and understand. I've watched it probably four times now, and I still feel like I get something out of it each time where I'm uncovering different things. The audio commentary that's on the Deaf Crocodile disc, it could be better. The gentleman who's doing it takes a lot of pauses. There's a lot of times where he's just not talking, but when he does talk, it's very informative, especially to hear about the people that are on screen, because this was a coup as far as the literati of Finland at the time. He's pointing out all of these different people and who they are, what they've done. Oh, he made this film. Oh, this is a writer. This person was involved with theater. The old man who's He's a little Big Brother-esque, but he seems to drop out of the film as we go along. But he's definitely there at the beginning. And he seems to be behind a lot of the recordings and the closed-circuit televisions that are going on. He apparently was a filmmaker who had made a a ton of films about Finland, little documentaries. presented Finland to the world. And I think it was a commentary by the director to say... Let's put this person in here as the observer of all these things because he was the observer of all of Finland and the person that shaped that story that tells the rest of the world, hey, this is what Finland's all about. It's like Bergman putting the the director of the carriage in, was it Wild Strawberries is the main character. I forget his name, but he was one of the early great Swedish directors. Including that older guy was so interesting because so much of what's going on in the prior decades, which really reminds me a lot of the situation in Poland, is you have these two countries who were not independent for hundreds of years off and on. And so I think, especially in the case of Finland, the Finnish language was something that was cast aside in favor of Swedish until they gained their independence. And so I do think you have this movement, especially in the 40s and 50s, and I'm sure into the 60s as well, 
of people trying to establish a national identity and stress the importance of things like the Finnish language and like national culture, which is so parallel to what's going on in Poland, just maybe to a way more extreme degree. I think you're right. And I think that a lot of people think of Finland as being part of Scandinavia, which it's not. It's part of the Nordic countries, but not the Scandinavian peninsula. And language wise, I think they're The two other languages that they are connected to are Hungarian and Estonian. So culturally, from just the language point of view, they have definitely a more tie to that Eastern Europe. And definitely there's a lot of geopolitical and cultural tension with what we would consider at the time the Soviet border, which is now the Russian border. Yeah, it's wild that they got away with being a neutral territory for so long and didn't seem to have any real major negative effects of that. I could speculate that part of it is probably due to their involvement in World War II, where initially they were one of the access powers until they figured out basically what the Nazis were doing and said, no, thank you, and started fighting the Nazis. Because for them, it was about the war with Russia and Russia trying to, or the Soviet Union at the time, trying to take over Finland. Yeah, it's incredible that Finland didn't become a satellite state. Yeah. One of the films that this reminded me of, Billion Dollar Brain, the Ken Russell, Michael Caine spy film. That is set in Finland with Helsinki as being the backdrop and also had that future technology kind of angle going on with the billion dollar brain being a computer and the kind of surreal imagery that that Ken Russell was using, which ties into this. And to go back to your initial question about watching this film, while the story and the plot are confusing and muddled for me, and I've watched it twice now, including this afternoon, The energy of the filmmaking and the things you talked about, like the subway effect or the use of technology and especially the design of the clothing and the apartments and the artwork. It opens in an art gallery. You see the Mona Lisa. And then I think it's Clara Bow, the it girl. And then you've got Ava Gardner. And then you've got, and I looked this up. It's a two year old at this point, Jack Kirby panel from Fantastic Four, number 64 of Human Torch Kissing Crystal, who's one of the Inhumans, which is very much a symbol of interracial love and affection hidden behind the the guise of these are the Inhumans who are a different race. And Johnny Storm is an enhanced human. I thought that was really interesting because then the rest of the artwork that you see in this gallery is like classical stuff or pop culture kind of stuff. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you see a lot of pictures or at least one large one of Sarah Turunen. Yes. The person that died in 76, what they say, she died eight years before you were born, Ramo. And it's interesting too that Ramo, our main character, he's not a very nice person. He is not somebody that I would ever want to hang out with any place, I think. He's a jerk. He's Especially of women. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I can really see the somebody pointed out that this was uh, very similar to Vertigo at times. And I can see that because Scotty is not a nice guy. And this guy or is a Jeff in that one. I also get, get my Hitchcock heroes mixed up when it comes to Jimmy Stewart. But I think it's Scotty in that one. Not a nice guy either. And again, very much jerk, especially when it comes to making a woman into something from the past and just being a real prick about stuff. At least he doesn't pick out all of her clothes. In that respect, it also reminded me a lot of Godard and his 
earlier 60s films where Anna Karina is basically just, yes, they were married and had a relationship, but the way that she's so often represented in those films, including in Alphaville, is she's not a real person. She's just this object that his fantasy can be placed into. And there's so much of that going on here. And honestly, I didn't find this as hard to follow because I've been doing this Godard series starting chronologically. So it's like I'm in Godard brain and now I'm just used to this like weird blend of sci-fi and love story that's creepy and that sort of fusion of classic art and pop culture. And there's just so much of that here too. For me, I think part of what made it not hard to follow, but muddied the plot was I was so distracted, but in a good way by the hairstyles, the clothes, the music, the juxtaposition of this cool jazz with kind of this psych folk hippie kind of music and just the amount of art and imagery and just everything going on in the background, the plastic furniture, this kind of retro futurism, and then the technology. Once again, they're bringing in cassette tapes, which were brand new at the time, and VHS, which is another callback for me to the movie CQ, because there's a scene where the filmmaker is at a Christmas party and somebody's showing off video using VHS to shoot. And they're talking about how that's going to change production of film in the future. All of that stuff that we look at some of that now and it's kitsch and retro. And I've got my iPhone and my laptop. But in 1969, like that, that Sony cassette tape was the future. Now for us, it's the past. Same thing with this like bulky Sony, I probably VHS or beta video camera. But that's the using the today's cutting edge technology to suggest the future. I love how he uses that little recorder and is recording his thoughts. Very Carl Kolchak. Just like, here, I'm going to write my story on this recorder before I give it to my secretary for her to type out or whatever. And like I said, he's very self-important, seems to really like the sound of his own voice. And the first time we see him, I can't remember if we see him as a person or him as an image at first, because we definitely get a lot of him watching himself present things. And one of the first things that we see feels like a newsreel of what was going on in the 60s and 70s, which is very odd for us to be watching this in 2023. It's set in 2012. It's made in 69. And they're talking about things that happened in the seventies. And I'm just like, that's not right. Listening to these things. No, that didn't happen. There was no worldwide famine for 15 years. I know Nostradamus predicted that, but so far, knock on wood, we haven't had that, but that kind of throws me. And then also that he's there in two places watching himself on screen and also being there pontificating about all of these things with all of his friends. Maybe they're not his friends. The woman with that kind of Harlequin pattern on her shirt, she doesn't seem like she's his friend. And that's also one of the things is we don't get stuff spoon fed to us as far as this is this person and they work at this place and their motivation is this. I appreciate that. I appreciate having to watch this a few times before I say, oh, that's that guy. And he's talking about strikes because after a while, or the first time I watched this, I was just like, who are all these people? And I was even getting a lot of them confused. I was so glad that so many 
Speaking of the hairstyles, somebody had very distinct hairstyles or facial hair or outfits where I'm like, if his assistant gal ever took off that eye makeup, I'd be completely lost. Luckily, I guess they got rid of makeup remover in the future. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if the coldness of the character and his lack of, I want to say affection, but maybe not intimacy for other people is a comment on the kind of society that he's living in where they are so far removed from the natural group of people that you would be around or tribe. Because there's a lot of talk about with meritocracy that the lower groups and there's that sports scene, which is one of the most odd things I've ever seen. That's like hippie sex ball, basketball, but with kissing. And that seems to be like the lower class people, even though they don't really want to say it's lower class. And then that shower scene afterwards, which isn't as open as, say, Starship Troopers, but is definitely hinting at like all these people pairing off. And I can't tell if it's all hetero, but it seems that way. It's just odd. And part of me was like, so is this a Jetsons porno I'm watching? Or did this play those midnight circuits for people that were looking for Nordic films back in the the late 60s, early 70s? That was one good thing that the commentary gentleman spoke about was that porn was very illegal in both Finland and Norway for the longest time, but it was okay in Denmark and Sweden. And of course, I have to think about the whole Swedish erotica movement that was going on. And just Sweden cracked it open with the I'm Curious Yellow films. But this apparently was scandalous to have one of our main female characters topless throughout so much of this movie. Yeah, there's a wild amount of nudity, at least for what it is. But I don't know if this is intentional. It's also been a while since I've read this, so maybe I'm incepting this memory. But it reminded me of in when they're setting up Brave New World, the Aldous Huxley novel, there's a similar conversation about how these people are in this society and there's all this sexual openness and we can separate sex from feelings and sex from morality and social expectations. And I got that similar vibe with that incredible racquetball orgy with (laughs) whatever it is. It's wonderful how uncomfortable he is, though. So I have to say that made me think of the original Battlestar Galactica TV series because they have that weird basketball-like game that they play in the series that this kind of slightly echoed. And then the striped uniforms, and we didn't talk about the striped clothes before, but there was earlier on, there was striped pajamas and trains. And I'm like, Okay, I'm getting very Nazi vibes here. And once again, with Finland's complicated history with the Nazis, I was like, okay, they're also reflecting on that. And this is also very much late part of the initial hippie era, that those ideals, the free love and naturalism and all of those things are reaching places like Finland at this point. And so we're starting, I think, maybe to see that reflected in this a little bit, along with very much like the mod fashions and whatnot. Yeah, you get that, I guess I'll call it a dance sequence, even though it ends with them all laying on the floor and they're amazed by their own hands and things. And I'm just like, they're on quaaludes. Yeah. The hand waving orgy is what I referred to it as. Yeah. They were for sure on quaaludes. <laughs> That's definitely what I was thinking. Yeah. I, and I was just like, okay, this is really, and it feels so 
of the time. It feels so 1969 that I'm like, all right, have we just not moved past that? Or are these people very into retro? And they're just like, hey, why don't we get together and have a lewd party just like our grandparents used to have? A key exchange or key bowl as uh, <laughs> a suburban orgy party. That scene, though, also reminded me of a lot of Japanese movies from that period, like late 60s, early 70s, where you have so many of those great kind of jazz nightclub dance interludes that serve no real plot function. They're just cool to look at. Doesn't that come right after the scene that's in the Japanese restaurant? It does. Yeah. Yes. So there is a, I'm not going to call it weird. I'm going to call it interesting tie between Japan and the Nordic countries. There's a film I saw years ago called Seagull Diner that's about a Japanese woman that moves to Helsinki to open a diner. It's a very charming kind of slice of life film, and I think it's based on a manga. But I think that because Japan and the Nordic countries were so isolated from the mainlands of their respective continents for so long that they developed cultures that are similar in a lot of ways. You have historically these warrior cultures and very individualistic cultures. And also, especially when you get into northern Japan, that's very much climate-wise the same as you're going to find in Norway, Sweden, Finland. Similar diets, too. Yeah. There's also a film I quite like called Cold Fever that's a Japanese film that's about a Japanese man that goes to Iceland to pay tribute to his parents who died on a trip to Iceland. So you get these cultural kind of, they're definitely different, but there are similar things going on within the history and the populace's uh, way of dealing with the landscapes that they're coming from. The lewd party reminded me a little bit of Zardoz, that whole idea of the idle rich. You were talking about the Eloy and the Morlocks before that very much feels like the people that are in the town versus the brutals that are out there with the guns and the Zardas head that's flying around and manipulating them through weapons as well as through religion and this whole idea of we're just going to have this big party and fuck around and watch TV and just be these idle people very much felt like it was coming from the same place as well. Definitely. And also in that sense is similar to some of that 50s and 60s English language dystopian sci-fi literature like Brave New World and Fahrenheit 451, where you get the sense that society just says, oh, okay, if the idea of the perfect life is for you to just sit in front of the television and have no curiosity and no difficult feelings and just be in this kind of luxury bubble that cuts you off from basically the real world. Yeah, there's even a scene with a big stuffed eagle or some kind of bird of prey. It was definitely giving me do androids dream of electric sheep vibes. I can definitely see that. And so this element of the story to have this woman who died in 76, Sarah, and then you've got Kisei, who's pretty much just a dead ringer, obviously played by the same actress. But this woman in current times, in 2012 times, who looks exactly like Sarah. And it just, and once it comes out of nowhere, it's just a very interesting twist to the story because we could just follow Raimo and just all the stuff that he does or Raimo and all these things. But yeah, you know, we're introduced to her pretty early on and it seems to take a little while for him to finally latch on to her as an idea. But what 
is his idea that he's going to investigate Sara and somehow use Kisei to recreate the past. Is this that Vertigo type story where he's going to like redo something? Is he just that obsessed with the 60s that he wants to take this woman and basically recreates her death and spoilers ends up killing her because of it? Yeah, it's deranged. It also, and I know this is totally not connected because it came out a couple of years after this film, but I recently rewatched the West German movie, The Lost Honor of Katarina Blum. And there are so many weird similarities. Like they're both basically about this really awful journalist who has no morals, no values, just is really obsessed with himself, treats women badly, is manipulative. And it's different because Katerina Blum is all about this woman who gets sucked into this terrorist investigation. And because she's loosely associated with this guy who might be a terrorist, it means she basically has no rights. And the journalist invents this totally fake story for her and ruins her life. But it almost seems like he becomes obsessed with her in a similar way to what's going on here, where it seems like he just doesn't care who this the original historical woman actually was. He just is trying to bring this idea that he had about her to life. And I was really curious about some of the feminist themes going on because he makes such a big deal about how the original woman, Sarah, how her life was ruined because she got caught up in this scandal trying to get abortion money out of different men, which was something that I culturally was a little confused about because Finland was one of the first ever countries to have equal voting rights. And it's not a place that I associate both Finland and Estonia are not places that I associate with particularly conservative views about women. And so it's just so interesting but strange that that's the thing that ruined her life in the past and caused her death. And she was also a nude model. And it's like, why does he care about this woman? Yeah, why her of all people? Yeah, I don't really know much about Finland and their history with especially the topic of abortion or... Was it more about the trying to get the money from three different people? I do know that the Nordic countries very much historically, or at least in the, the, let's say after World War II, definitely have been much more supportive of, say, women who got pregnant and are unmarried and want to have the child or keep the child with socialized daycare and uh, housing assistance and job training and It's not a stigma for that to actually happen in most of those places, at least in the time that, you know, in the last 30 years when I've been associated with people from that part of the world. So I'm I'm assuming that goes back a little bit further because we talk about countries like Iceland or Norway who have had female politicians going back into the the 70s, if not earlier. Finland did a weird thing when they, as far as I understand, When they attained independence in the 19-teens, they tried to have a king for a minute and everyone was like, absolutely not. And so their first government leader, I think he was prime minister, was really into socialist welfare programs. And that's the foundation of their current state is all these really progressive 
communal initiatives. And one of their first ministers was a woman in the 1920s. So it's like it goes back a hundred years now. I found it very fascinating. The section where Ramo is looking at these headlines that seem to be all from the past. The hair. Yeah. There's the one thing that says the Pope approves men's foam. And I could only think that he's not talking about a hair foam, but talking about contraceptive is what I was That's picking what out I from thought. that. Okay. And I thought that was interesting because obviously it's the Pope is approving a contraceptive and it's contraceptive for a man rather than for a woman, which I thought was pretty progressive as well, because we just don't have those other than vasectomies, which aren't 100% foolproof. But it's just amazing that. They were talking about this back in 69. I mean, we're just a few years north of the pill and the the sexual revolution. But I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And there's a lot of headlines where he's telling the story through that. So they're really laying out a lot of stuff at the beginning. And in this part, as far as what has happened in these intervening years, of course, the one that always catches my ear when I'm watching it is the idea of what was it? The reunification of Germany. I thought they said 87, but somebody said 82. And I was like, wow, if it's 87, they're only just a couple of years off here. Must have been a jab at Catholicism because Catholicism is still not supportive of birth control. And (laughs) the thing that popped into my mind was that Monty Python meaning of life skit where they talk about the French ticklers and that the Protestants have them and the Catholic wife is like, why can't we have one of those? And her husband's like, we're Catholic. <laughs> like, we can't have anything. <laughs> there was also discussion at some point in the film about population issues and control. And in today's world, where that's still a concern for a lot of people, I do remember in the 70s, there was a lot of the population bomb and that kind of thing that was of concern. And that you get into the early 70s when I was born and my siblings were born. There was zero population growth in places. And there was concerns about China and India for sure and their populations. Right now, we are seeing a far right conspiracy theory about non-white babies taking over the world. So that's not something that's gone away, but definitely the whole contraception, definitely the, the kind of free love kind of angle is, is playing into that. Yeah, there are a lot of things about this movie that don't feel like they've aged, like a lot, especially, yes, very unfortunately. But even there's like a throwaway line about JFK, and it made me think about the headline from yesterday where, you know, one of his more recent family members like blamed the CIA. (laughs) And it just, it's definitely appalling to watch a movie from the late 60s and feel like, and even feel like the way they deal with technology, like you pointed out earlier, how there's all this great stuff with the recordings and the tapes and their video calls. But the way that the journalist is so obsessed with himself and looking at footage of himself, like you could definitely do a reading of this that connects it to what's going on with social media right now. and. The way it just sucks out people's souls. I could see Ava, the one with the crazy eyelashes. She could totally be an influencer. 
That's what she did after he pulled some strings and got her fired so that he didn't have to deal with her making kissy faces at him in the the video call anymore. (laughs) So did anybody else get network vibes off of this? Definitely. A little bit, yeah. With the idea of massaging reality and presenting it as news, which of course has only once again become more and more real in our world of, quote, reality television and ultra-partisan news outlets and like everything that's going on today. In fact, there was apparently some town hall tonight that might fall into that category. It reminded me a little bit of broadcast news, that scene where William Hurt is forces himself to cry and you find out the secret that we didn't know until broadcast news about how they shoot these interviews of one camera. So we just get all of the subject and then we get all of the reactions from the reporter after poor Kise dies. The first thing out of his mouth is, was the camera still running? And it's just so freaking cold. So gross. The one thing that struck me about that scene both times I watched the film is that we see the helicopter fly over her and we see the shadow of the helicopter go over her. And it's it's literally foreshadowing what's going to happen. Yeah, it's real rough. And that it's a one of the most old fashioned looking trains that I've seen in a long time. Like I expected the hole in the wall gang to come busting out of the side of it at some point. This super old looking train that is what knocks her over, knocks her off. Just I was like, wow, where did this thing come from? This should be in a museum. It's pouring smoke in an era of electric trains. and Yeah, that was a nice little, the past is returning to haunt them vibe there. And there's the whole thing with the music boxes that Sarah gave out as well, and that so many people still have these music boxes. And I guess some people think that they were very individual, these gifts, but then you find out that she gave them to pretty much everybody. I thought that was an interesting motif that we have through here, especially every time we see one of these, we also have to hear the song that plays when the music box gets opened. Yeah, it reminded me of something that you would maybe see some kind of male Lothario do in a different movie where it's giving the same present to all his girlfriends and they think they're the only one getting it. The song that Rock Hudson writes for his dates in Pillow Talk. Exactly. (laughs) Music boxes are an an oddity, aren't they? Because there was a period in time when they were a big deal. And I see them pop up in films once in a while, but not all that often. And aren't they usually a symbol of young female innocence in a hope? Just innocence in general. I don't know why, but the music box film that often pops to my mind for no logical reason is this Hong Kong film called Time and Tide that is, I want to say from the early 2000s. So it's like basically a triad action thriller type movie, but there's this running through line that's supposed to be really sad and sentimental about a guy who's looking for a music box that plays this different version of the happy birthday song. And so even there, it's this like, symbol of innocence but also of the past and i think there's a lot of that going on here too yeah i don't have a whole lot of experience with music boxes in film other than 
where Frederica Bimmel kept those Polaroids of herself in Silence of the Lambs. But that whole thing of that is a secret place. That's the place that none of the male FBI agents thought to ever look. It's very much a feminine thing. And that's why Clarice can find that while nobody else can. Yes. Even in this film, it feels like a private, intimate gesture that is being exploited by the journalists as a way to maybe feel like he knows this woman. And I think it also is a way for the other characters that he talks to to feel like they knew her, even though it seems like they didn't as well as they thought they did, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a little like Laura in that we're investigating this woman who has died and hearing all of these different perspectives from the men that were in her lives. And not only do we have the men that were in her lives, but then we have the historical record, which then plays right into Rymo and his whole thing of basically recreating that record and being that historian who likes to mind the past and really shape it to be what he wanted it to be. He's ahead of his time. He accurately predicted journalism in 2012 and then onward. <laughs> oh, like those poor journalists that are like, you'll never believe what happened in 1997. Did you know this was a thing? It's, yeah, I'm old. I know that was a thing. I'm surprised you're that shocked by it. Yeah, yellow journalism, not new. No. <laughs> the thing for me, I'm older as well. And I work with a lot of young people and the things that I will reference from the past that people that are my age and older completely understand, let's say Gilligan's Island. Hell yeah. They have no clue. I have a coworker who literally told me that they went to a, a county government meeting and the people that own the abandoned putt golf park were there speaking. I said, oh, Scooby-Doo. And she blanks there. No idea. How do you not know who Scooby-Doo is? Yeah, exactly. They're so shaped by this limited media that they're fed that they don't necessarily come into contact with accidentally stumbling over things. Or I'll never say Gilligan's Island was great, but we all understand the reference. Gilligan's Island was great. Okay. <laughs> but also, I think you could make that case for my generation as well, because People, for the most part, watched what was on TV and watched what movies came out in theaters and thought I was a weirdo for wanting to see movies from the past and from other countries. And I think even in the U.S., when something like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon came out and people were like, wait, we have to read? Are you fucking serious? So I think it might just be society wide and not generation specific. I don't want to say I was taken aback, but it was just a little sad for me when I was making reference. Just recently, we were talking about all the troubles that were going on in Hong Kong with the Chinese government. And I said, this might turn into another Tiananmen Square. And I got a total blank look and there was just no memory of what Tiananmen Square is. And I'm just like, OK, that probably happened when you were like five. So I can see where you're coming from. But that was such a big cultural moment for at least me in my life, and I imagine you guys as well, seeing that guy standing up to the tank. That's one of those images that's just burned into my brain. Yeah, not to get us too far off the course here, but I read a study a couple of years ago that basically said younger generations of people, especially it, it was mostly about U.S. education and how history is not being taught in an acceptable way. 
And the survey that they did, kids understood that World War II was a big deal, but they didn't really understand what the Holocaust was. How could you have missed that one? I don't know, but... Once again, the Morlocks and the Eloy, because the upper class lose touch with the reality of what's going on around them. And I don't know, have either of you watched The Good Fight, the spinoff series from The Good Wife? No. All right. So it's a pretty fantastic show, in my opinion. But the final season has, it's about lawyers, has all of the civil unrest going on in the background that because they're so privileged and at such a high level, they're largely insulated from it, even though dead bodies are like falling in front of them or explosions are going off in the background. And I feel like when you have a society of people that are spoon fed a certain reality that uncritically, that are isolated from each other, that don't learn how to negotiate conflict at a young age through playing with each other or don't develop empathy by being part of a group where there is conflict and you talk through it or you play through it or you get mad and then you get over it or whatever, that all of those things lead to the kind of society that we're seeing reflected in this film being predicted. So maybe the technology isn't exactly right or the events aren't exactly right, but I think the idea of a society of people that are socially distanced from each other emotionally and intellectually, I think that's right on the money. We have a really mentioned, he says, I guess it's her colleague or her friend, the guy with the goatee that we see several times through this, who ends up being murdered on television, taking over the TV waves to talk about having a strike at these nuclear plants, and then gets shot on TV. And yeah, there is all this unrest. There's mention of strike through so much of this movie. And then we finally get him breaking in and talking about this. And that moment when Ramo clicks on the, I thought it was just a tape recorder, but I guess it was a video recorder because he gets to watch that moment a few times. And it's, it's really chilling to see this guy just get shot right on live TV and trying to put down that unrest as much as you possibly can. We will not stop until this strike is not a thing. One of the thinkings about what happened to civil rights era in the United States was that the fact that people were seeing this brutality on their television is what put certain amount of pressure for certain civil rights to be upheld. And that if we live in a world where people are more entertained or thrilled or have you seen this about the brutality than are appalled by it, that's once again, the, the climate we're living in right now, where we can have politicians who are literally getting federal indictments or having civil court judgments handed out against them in the last two days, and their supporters are like, oh, or I don't believe it. That's a different world that we're living in. This is a really depressing conversation. That's, <laughs> it's not the most uplifting movie either. No. <laughs> we talk about the music real quick. That's uplifting. One thing I'm glad that stays the same is if you're going to get high, you put on sitar music, man. That's what you do. That's that folk psych hippie stuff. Oh, God. Yeah, that you mentioned that whole idea of the jazz flute that's going on through that. And when you've got the like folky type thing in the foreground and that in the background, I'm just like, wow, this is cacophony. Yeah, it's almost a satire of 
the hippie movement going on in the 60s while at the same time seeming to have similar politics and the way that it deals with the class issues and the striking and even nuclear proliferation. But the way that the film depicts them in all of their 60s fashion glory, it seems to also really be having a laugh at the same time. The sex scene on the clear plastic furniture is just chef's kiss. <laughs> and the last scene on the clear plastic furniture is also perfect. Where was the wooden ornament that looks very much like handcrafted kind of art piece punctures it and lets the air out. And it slowly is sinking and distorted by the view through the plastic. One of the things I was thinking about the jazz music is that's very much kind of the cool hip music of the generation before the hippie kind of thing that we're seeing. So our main character, that would have been the rebellious music of his youth, maybe. Definitely. And the kind of rebellious music and a lot of the people associated with it, I think, led right into civil rights and and those kinds of issues. So it is fascinating the way that this movie kind of folds time and cultural time to lay it on top of each other. I I do think that makes it disorienting, like you were saying at the beginning of the episode, but it also makes it more fun to rewatch it. It's also a continuation of history in a way that not all movies do, where you have older culture that is still present along with the new culture and new ideas. And maybe that first scene at the art gallery or the art show. And once again, coming back to the Jack Kirby image, that's two years before this movie's made. And then we've got the Mona Lisa. So it's showing this March and the Clara Bow and Ava Gardner is all coming in succession through the decades. So it's showing that this artistic ideals from the past to right you know, two years before this movie is made. And too many films have all the brand new clothes from this year, all the brand new cars from this year, all the brand new hairstyles and music. Whereas the reality is we still have people that are driving 20-year-old cars or haven't changed their hairstyle in 15 years or still listening to, to music from 50, 60, 70 years ago. Yeah, that's another one of the things about this that reminded me so much of Godard's work in the mid-50s, especially, is because even when he is a younger guy making movies that involve pop culture, he always feels like this grandpa who doesn't understand the pop culture going on around him. And it's it's his attempt to relate, to work through it and in films like Masculine Feminine and Things that have to deal with pop culture and more popular music and advertising. And there's definitely some of that going on here. That kind of suggestion that how you look or what you have in your house is just your whole personality. Yeah, like I said, they really pay attention to all of those trappings, all of the images on the wall, all of the little tchotchkes that they have. But I really appreciate too, related to the music is some of the futuristic sounds that they have. And of course, whenever anybody opens up a door and there's a futuristic sound, I'm just like, okay, that's Star Trek. But you know, we're just a couple of years north of Star Trek. I'm not sure how popular it was in Finland at the time, but 
all those other little electronic noises that are going on. I was like, that's really cool. And I'm glad that they did that. That puts it into a place and cements us. And even with those really funky opening credits with the little beeps and boops and that awesome font that they're using for the title and everything, it just really makes me very happy when I see things like that. I always enjoy seeing how the past represents the future and just what kind of world we live in. I always love those charts where it's like, okay, Soylent Green happens this year, Blade Runner happens this year, The Matrix happens here. And to see where we were in, quote unquote, 2012 with this movie, it's really quaint. You mentioned the door opening. One of the things that struck me is there's a couple scenes in an elevator and that elevator to me very much evokes the Bradbury building. So whether it's a double indemnity or Blade Runner with the metal bars of the elevator that's not even an enclosed car behind whichever character it is that's in there at the time. I think that's interesting that we have a door that seems to be more like Star Trek, but we have this like classic noir elevator scene. Yeah, it's great the way that a lot of that overlaps and is even in the same scene as each other. It's really nice. Yeah, there are some really nice touches to this and it's not all depressing, but there's a lot of it that is. So I would say enjoy it if you want to, but yeah, definitely go in being open to absorbing a lot of information because they are not just going to spoon feed you with this movie. Be open to the vibe of 1968 because it is all here. Oh boy. Oh yeah. So let's go ahead and take a break and we'll be back with an interview with Yirki Wikonen, the author of Living in the Future, Revisiting Time of Roses, right after these brief messages. Join me, Jamie Benning, on the Film Inventories podcast, particularly if you enjoy stories like designer Nilo Rodis Jamiro convincing George Lucas to push him around to help gain the support of his crew on the ailing Howard the Duck. Blam! The door opens, it's George. Everybody gasps. George makes a beeline to me. I'm literally back against the wall. Or hear puppeteer Tim Rose's emotional story behind that iconic Admiral Akbar shot in Return of the Jedi. I believe the war is something... To be proud of, but not to celebrate. Or how Star Wars editor Paul Hirsch tackled cutting so many successful films. The thing that I learned from working with the Palmen is that tension depends on a clock. You need to have the sense that time is running out. Maybe Oscar-winning sound designer Mark Mangini's insightful chat about his work on Blade Runner 2049. Not a, not a single sound from the original Blade Runner in the new film. A great deal of inspiration. That's the Filmumentaries podcast with me, Jamie Benning. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for asking. It's a nice surprise. Yeah. So, Professor, can you tell me a little bit about you and your background? Yes. I'm an artist, visual artist, former professor of sculpture at the Art Academy in Helsinki. I've been writing 10, 12 books on various subjects as well. So I have a kind of a divided practice between the handmade objects and the a little bit more intellectual practice, which is the books. And I spent most of my childhood and youth in cinemas and in film clubs. So this is kind of the old love of mine is the films, although I've never been in, in any way connected to the practice of making film or either in film criticism. So it's been really a hobby rather than a serious business in that sense. So how did you come to write about A Time of Roses? 
This is the kind of a childhood thing, really, because I grew up in in the age of the great science fiction films and, of course, the space travel, as we knew it at that time in the late 60s, moon trip, of course. So all this was so exciting, and I, I really seriously took the promises of the science fiction, especially, of course, 2001 by Kubrick, of course. I thought this is really going to be my life in the 21st century, and actually... I haven't yet reached that far, but I still have some hope that I will one day fly up there. So it was this particular film, Time Frozen, since we didn't have any other science fiction films in Finland. So it was a odd little curiosity, which I remember from my childhood. And I thought it was the 50th anniversary of the film, and I thought, since no one else is seemed that no one else is remembering this at all. So I thought, well, maybe I should try at least a little bit too. Although, of course, the book itself is not strictly about the film, but also by about two individuals who just happen to take part in it. So why do you think that there wasn't a lot of science fiction in Finland? And is there now more of that, or is it still pretty rare? Absolutely, there's more. Of course, it's mostly it's literature. There are lots of authors and bands, of course, uh, Yes, it's as popular as everywhere else, of course, but the films, we don't really have that much. I think it's uh, something to do with the Finnish mentality, perhaps, or simply the lack of resources to do a good science fiction films. It seems to be a bit too expensive for the small country like Finland. The film business is really a small thing rather than, and it was especially so in the 60s. So we are extremely happy that we at least have this one film which is an exception as a whole, yes. So when did you first see the movie and what did you think when you saw it? I didn't see it when it came to the cinemas because I wasn't allowed to go in. There was an age limit and there was, since there were some scenes where the naked breasts of a female character were shown, so of course it was considered not appropriate for kids to see the film. And I had to wait for the television screening from 1973, which is... Well, less than 50 years ago now. And uh, yeah, that was it. It was still quite fresh, but of course, it was the competition was getting heavier. It was at the time when Tarkovsky's Solaris was just out, and I had seen it the previous week. <laughs> of course, Time Roses couldn't really compete with those kind of films. Yes, it was a pleasurable moment and a very good memory of it, seeing it on black and white television, which didn't, of course, diminish anything from the film itself, since it is a black and white film. Is the film rather well-known these days, or did it fall into obscurity? Risto Jarva is a respected director, but I don't think there's a great following of his films these days. He was quite a versatile director, and this film is an exception. It's considered a kind of a strange anomaly, rather than a kind of a... It never was a big hit, and you have to be in a kind of supportive mood to cherish the film, I think, still. Yeah, you mentioned Risto Jarva. Can you tell me a little bit more about him and his career? He was a self-made director, really, because there wasn't really opportunities in the 50s when he was a student. There weren't really too many opportunities to how to study film in Finland. So they started with his friends. They started a just practice-based film club, so they, they just got the camera and started learning the tricks of the filmmaking, and so it was a hobby 
turning into a little into a professional practice. And we have to remember that Finland were, always was a country where very few films were produced a year. Like in the year when Time of Roses came out, there were only eight feature films that were made that year in 1969. So it's a kind of a tricky business how he learned the you had to find the money and there wasn't very much money. So everything was really handmade. It was more like, even when they produced films like Time Roses, it was still, I think it looked like amateur filmmaking almost. Although by that time they were professionals, but uh, the budgets were so small that uh, it's a miracle that the film was made in the first place, I think. Later he turned into, he did this kind of social dramas in the 60s, which were you could say politically, I think reflecting the times when the 60s politics changed quite dramatically because, of course, international things going on, which shows also in, in Time of Roses. But later in his career, I think he got his best hits with um, more comedy-like films. He's probably best known these days for these films from his later career. Also, some warm-hearted comedies rather than social realism of any sort. I know that the film really talks about some of the social upheaval of the late 60s. What was that like in Finland at the time? Because I know of riots in Japan, of course, in the United States, the student uprising in France, but I don't know what was happening in Finland at the time. Of course, I don't know. I was too young to take part of anything. That's, I don't have first-hand knowledge about it. But there were some little echoes of the international reactions against the Vietnam War, of course, some sort of political, although Paris students, things, of course, affected quite a lot of uh, intellectuals. But I think the most serious thing, and it's also echoes in, in Time of Roses, is, is of course the occupation of Czechoslovakia, when the Russian tanks went to Prague, and, and that really what was a, a scary moment in Finland since we are next door neighbors still with Russia and um, the political goodwill was tested. What, how do we behave? How do we react to that? Politically, Finland couldn't really say this or that. It was difficult. And, and I think there was lots of scary moments that similar kind of things might happen in Finland too. Yeah, I always tend to forget the connections between Finland and Russia. And so I imagine there was a good deal of fear there. Yes, although there was at the time the political relationships were good, but we were still under pressure, I would say. Yes, of course, still the Cold War feelings were there. And yes, it wasn't certainly easy for Finns to... There were reactions against the Russians, but they were not allowed openly, really, because that would have been a bit... Shaking the consensus, so to speak. Certainly that wasn't allowed. You mentioned before that your book really looks at two people rather than necessarily the director of the film. You concentrate on two other people that were behind the scenes of it. Lorian Tilla, please correct my pronunciation on that. And then I can't pronounce the other name at all. Irki Kurenniemi is the other guy. Laurian Tila was, he was, I would say he was my teacher. But formally, I wasn't a student at the Fine Arts Academy, actually. I was already lecturing there at the time when we met. But he was director of the Fine Arts Academy in Helsinki. But before that, he was already in the 60s, an influential conceptual artist, one of the very few in Finland. And uh, 
had a tremendous impact on younger generation who think about art in a different way. And, and he just sadly died last year and we are arranging a, an exhibition to commemorate him, but uh, later this year, but, uh, yes, part of the reason behind the book was that there was this personal connection with, uh, Lauri and me, and uh, I was always fascinated by the fact that he had done the major interiors in the film and been part of this kind of a future building, something that I was looking at as a child already. And so it's, it was also my idea to celebrate about his, because people didn't really know that people in the art world didn't know that he had been involved in this film project in his youth. So I just wanted to remind some people. And then Elke Kuranim is, is the other guy who is, in my view, he's sad figure. Maybe I, I wanted to contrast two different kinds of careers where this rather odd idea of uh, resurrecting himself in a kind of a computerized entity later in some, some distant future. Of course, it's a fantastic idea, but uh, the content that he left behind, all the stuff he left behind wasn't so uplifting after all. But it's archived in the Art Museum in Finland, all, all his boxes of stuff that he left behind. So basically, yes, we could try to resurrect him. How familiar were you with Yerke's work? Because obviously you knew Lorian Tilla before that. I didn't speak to him. He was still alive when I wrote the text. I was actually asked to write the text about him. And uh, since there was lots of text at that time written where he was hailed as a genius, and I really didn't see him as a genius at all, but uh, a remarkable figure in, in many ways and an important experimenter and, and uh, even visionary to some extent. Of course he was, but I, I didn't really underwrite his uh, importance internationally in the same way as it was done in the art context. So I wrote a critical text, which was my intention from the beginning that to what if we look at the stuff in a more critical way. And so that explains a little bit the tone of the, the tone of the text, which is sometimes I, I really go against the grain. What do you see as the legacy of A Time of Roses? Is it still being talked about? Do you see the influences of it on other things today? To be honest, I don't think so. It's, it's rather forgotten work, and you might say that for a reason. We know it's not a great film as such, but it has some interesting elements there. And I think they are still relevant. If you want to discuss the late 60s science fiction filmmaking, I think there are parts in that film that still look very good to me. It's difficult to say how people outside Finland, because I don't know, as I mentioned in the book, it was shown abroad to some extent in the late 60s, early 70s, but of course it never got a wide circulation and the little we have of the international paper clips left. And so it wasn't really hailed as a masterpiece, of course. So it would be nice to discuss this with someone who sees it for the first time from another other part of the world, because of course there are some elements there which make it exotic. The language itself, I suppose it may sound a little futuristic that people speak Finnish instead of English, for example. And, um, and there are some funny ideas there too. It's, uh, of course, it's a film of its, it was meant to be different, but the changes in the political climate and the uh, happenings and the, the world changed the tone of the film too. And of course, the, while if they made changes to the script while they were already filming, of course, it makes it a 
little glances at group work. People came with different ideas, reacted to different impulses. Yes, I don't know what to say about its importance. Which maybe you could tell me better. How, how do you see it when you look at it now? There are a lot of people that are going to be seeing this for the first time because of Deaf Crocodile just doing a restoration of it. And it's touring around the States now. So I'm very curious if there's anything that you think people should know before they just turn it on and watch this kind of strange movie for the first time. It comes from a country which, of course, was always not at the center of filmmaking. And uh, and I mentioned the resources were very limited at that time. They still are. Now we have clever young filmmakers in Finland. There are some great films that come out in recent years. Of course, we are learning the trade. But in the 60s, I think it was... There are better films from the era, I should say. If I have to introduce something that's uh, typically... Finish from that time. This wouldn't be my first choice in, in terms of film history, but uh, as a science fiction fan, of course, I have to say, yes, this is a great gift. Even a small one, which is still a great gift too. I think we still don't have a better film in Finland that we could put into the science fiction genre. It's a pity no one has thought about the, another, even a remake or whatever it could be. Now it would be historical film, because we have already passed the future, of course, as it happens with many films of this kind. Yeah, which is always an interesting thing. There's, what was it, a few years ago, it was Blade Runner. This was, what, 2012 this was set in? Yes, so there are these, of course, I tried to read the film also in the context of science fiction in general and see that the same similar themes have been repeated later on and during that time. Of course, the influences that came from France, the, the new French cinema at that time, the Truffaut and Godard, of course, that, which were very influential in Finland too, as, as elsewhere. Of course, they show also in this film somehow in a smaller way, but uh, these directors were, of course, well-known in Finland, had visited Finland. Of course, the idea of making a science fiction film wasn't an original Finnish idea, or it didn't really, it wasn't an impulse from American films rather than from the French examples, the Alpha Will and then the Fahrenheit by Truffaut, of course, were the films that have been seen just previously in Finland. And I think that's the right context to also for this film. What are you working on these days? Rather different things. Now, I just finished two books relating to Finnish art history. 1910s avant-garde exhibitions in Helsinki, the reception of the new art, and then another even earlier stuff, 19th century stuff. The next projects will be exhibitions, so I have tried to leave the writing desk for a moment and go to my studio again and produce some sculpture. Thank you so much, Professor. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks. It was a pleasure, and uh, be happy to hear what you make of it. All 
right, we are back and we were talking about A Time of Roses. And I mentioned that there's not a lot of Finnish sci-fi. Like I said, there's a couple others. I want to say that Maki Kurosmaki might have done a sci-fi movie. I remember one was that Lipton Cockton was another one. There's one called Solar Wind. I mentioned before that I was reminded a lot of Alphaville. I was also reminded a lot of 12 Monkeys. And I don't know if that's because of the vertigo connection or if it's that whole idea of setting a movie a lot of 12 monkeys let's say is set in a future year and then sending cole back to 95 96 and showing us how the world looks through his eyes as a foreigner to this land i thought was pretty cool and it reminds me of that that we're exploring the past we're exploring the present through somebody from the future. And then, like I said, there's all of the vertigo ties that happen inside of that movie as well, even to the point of remaking Madeline Stowe, putting her in a blonde wig, giving her these different clothes. But you're also doing that to the male character as well. And in this, Rymo, I don't think he gives a shit about changing at all. I think he just wants to get all the glory is what it feels like. So have you seen Iron Sky? I have. It's been a while, though. The Udo Kier movie? Did he do that one? I think he has a bit role in it. Okay, all right. He's in it. It's a European film in that it has a international European cast, but the director is Finnish. So it's definitely got a Finnish bent. And the director got his start making some Star Wreck films, which are parodies of Star Trek. But Iron Sky is the moon Nazi film. And... So it is a comedy, but it is also an action film. It also homages almost every, not every, but a lot of science fiction or important films that you have seen. Everything from The Great Dictator to Dr. Strangelove. And it's definitely got a certain Finnish sensibility to it. It's worth a watch, or at least the trailer's worth a watch for anybody that's interested. And the soundtrack is pretty amazing. So... People want to see something that's maybe more accessible. And it also has a very of its moment political bent that's very much skewering American geopolitics. So as every film should. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Memory service is very world police type of attitudes towards the U.S. Yeah. Sticking our noses in where they don't belong. And the president is a uh, Sarah Palin stand in, which is, is entertaining the way that they skewer her at that time does she talk about how she can see russia from her backyard because i i will never forget that press interview i don't remember but i do remember that she has a treadmill she walks on in the oval office while there's a rack of guns behind her and a stuffed polar bear yes. oh wow wow yeah we didn't get to talk about it but probably my favorite line in the whole movie is where they say the americans have continued their isolationist policy and it's don't we all wish that was real? Yeah. Yeah. Well, wow, that's so funny. Well, and you should point out that we're right now in, in a moment when Finland is actually joining NATO. Yeah. Which is pretty smart because of the threat from Russia at the same time. Yeah. And Sweden, famously neutral Sweden, is also in the process of joining NATO. I think I've seen a lot more Finnish films in just the last 10 years than I have in the 30 before that. Just with things like Sisu, the one that just came out, the kind of like revenge film against Nazis, which was nice and violent and, and action filled. The same director gave us Rare Exports, 
there's a film called Sauna, which was a uh, horror film. And that was about soldiers that are patrolling. And there's this whole idea of are there Russians around or not? But then they end up running into some more supernatural type of thing. So it feels like this is a good time to, to talk about Finnish film. Even just growing up at the time that I did, it just like the Karsmaki brothers and just what they've done over the last 20, 30 years has just been remarkable. I love a lot of Aki's stuff and Maki's not too bad either. Speaking of Aki Karasamaki, his film of Leningrad Cowboys Go America is probably one of the most accessible films for English speakers coming from a Finnish director. The band itself actually did a space-themed album called Leningrad Cowboys Go Space. That's a lot of fun. It's pretty silly, but it's a lot of fun. And there's been some other Finnish films that have trickled out. There's a film called Golden Gods I saw several years ago that's about young people in Helsinki. I hate to say it's the Finnish version of kids, but it's got the young people that are aimless and are doing drugs and running to follow the law and that kind of thing going on. And I recall that being at least watchable, maybe a little bit over my head without understanding all of the cultural references. I think it's called Rock and Roll Never Dies is a Finnish film that's about a guy who's obsessed with playing rock music and he joins a writing class. And he comes to figure out why it is he never got sent for his military duty. And there's a girl in the class that he likes. And it's a charming little film that I saw at a international film festival, but I don't think it's ever gotten a proper release in the States that's worth checking out. Other than that, there are a lot of Finnish films about music, and there's been a number of Finnish-Swedish productions that are out there. Uh, are you familiar with the film movement, the company that puts out international yes. movies? They put out some Finnish films that are pretty interesting as well, if people want to check those out. More slice of life or hysterical dramas. And it seems like a lot of what we get uh, from Finland is World War II related. Have you seen Temptation of St. Tony? Mm-mm. So I think that might actually be Estonian, but it has some similarities to Time of Roses in the way that it's very surrealistic and... You're not spoon fed the plot and it definitely borrows from like classic Hollywood and film noir. And but that was my introduction to more modern cinema from that region. And it is incredible. But this really does remind me more of Czech cinema from the mid to late 60s, Polish cinema from the early 70s, that sort of strange countercultural vibe that some of those films had. Even, I know earlier you mentioned the language similarities between Hungary and Finland, and there's a lot about Time of Roses that reminds me, and the, the title is escaping me, but there's this Miklos Yankshow film that he made in like 71 or 72 in Italy that's, I think, a Hungarian-Italian co-production, but it has so much similar stuff with this idea of the idle rich sitting around while people are suffering and people are striking. And I think a lot of those directors were keyed into that same mindset, either accidentally or on purpose at that time. Was that the the pacifist? Yes. Pierre okay. Clemente is in it. Nice. My king. Oh, it's a bonus. I love it. So it's much more colorful than this film. 
but a very similar vibe with this use of futuristic set pieces and this lady has a house that looks like it belongs in a giallo film like everything is glass and she's got a similar mix of like classic art and pop art everywhere and i wondered if maybe yangsho saw time of roses and was inspired because it's so unlike his hungarian films but highly recommended i have to wonder who actually saw this film especially when you look at some of the things like struck me that some of the clothing could have been for used in Logan's run, for instance. Looking back at interviews and discussions of film from filmmakers from the 70s, a lot of them talk about going to see just whatever was at the theater and being exposed to international cinema in a way that maybe we don't think of today with young filmmakers. Did whoever the costumer was for Logan's run see some of these outfits and go, hey, that might work? Or was that something that fashion magazines might have picked up on or somebody somewhere saw this. Did any of those Marvel comics writers or artists who are in New York in the 70s see this somewhere and go, oh, that would work for this character? Or I like the I like the idea of the open circle at the sleeve on the clothing is something that we don't necessarily see other places. There is definitely some fashion coming from British and Parisian fashion magazines at the time, though. The other thing that strikes me is that this is like the rise of the Marimako brand from Finland, which was one of and is still one of their big design exports that you would have been seeing in the United States and you would have been seeing in potentially England because it's not that far geographically. And there is a diaspora of Finnish people here in the United States. The, the two big ones are there's one in Idaho and there's one in Upper Michigan. And those people are coming, are still in contact with what's going on back home to a certain degree. Or people in Finland are, to a certain degree, still communicating and coming to the States with different cultural foods and, you know, language and some of the, you know, ideas about fashion or design or whatever, especially. Yeah, I know like this movie wasn't impossible to find. I remember it was put out on DVD. Oh, I can't remember what year that was, but I remember looking for it when we're talking about like tape trading and things and finding a copy years and years ago and there being a pretty good upgrade on one of the torrent sites a few years after that. Of course, what Def Crocodile has done to it makes it look heads and shoulders better than anything I've seen. But, you know, to your point about how far was the influence of this movie, I don't think it was huge, but I think the right people probably have seen it. But it wasn't impossible to find, but it was very difficult to find for a lot of years. My sense is that a lot of what's going on in Time of Roses that feels influential is maybe just more attributable to a kind of cultural zeitgeist that a lot of people seem to be picking up on and coming up with similar ideas in different countries at similar times. And But it is just so weird the way it is set in the future, but reflects so heavily on 1968. So a film that echoed to me a little bit is, of course, The Apple, which set in the world of 1994 and that uses that once again that updated modern architecture to suggest a future 
Yeah, I watched and fell in love with this French movie called Eye for Icarus recently that's all about this kind of futuristic reimagining of the JFK assassination, but in France. And it does the same thing where it's not shot on any sets that make it look especially sci-fi, but the way that it focuses on that kind of very glass-heavy sort of brutalist buildings, especially office buildings, it feels much more futuristic in a pretty similar way to Time of Roses and Alphaville. That sounds really fascinating. I think I might have to track that down. You would love it. That's something I'm probably going to have to at least look up a trailer for, see if I can find it. Even getting more of Risto Yarva's stuff would be great. The poor guy, the director of this, he wasn't around for that long and he ended up dying pretty young, died in a car accident, I think after he had a party for his last film, The Year of the Hair from 77. So not even 10 years after this, he directed a lot of shorts. He directed just a handful of features. So it would be very easy to get more of his stuff out there. But Yeah, not too many people talking about him. And then he definitely was doing some interesting stuff. Just hearing about Year of the Rabbit, hearing about, what's the 72 film? When the Heavens Fell, I think it's called. That looks fascinating. And that's also a person whose private life is wrecked when they're exposed in a sensationalist magazine. So it sounds very similar as far as the power of the the press and just using it for the wrong reasons or the wrong way. So I could see our boy Ramo being part of that. He's not. It's not a sequel or anything, but feels like we're taking aim at some journalists. Some similar writers on there as well. Peter Von Bogg is also on that movie as well. He had worked with uh, Yarva a few times. I think one of the things about a film like this that will definitely appeal to people who like things like Alphaville or any of the dystopic science fiction cultural stuff we talked about that hopefully that will lead them to explore more of the filmmakers catalog or check out other things with these actors and hopefully releasing companies and studios and streamers will think hey this could be an interesting thing to get out there if people are actually interested in some kind of retrospective whether it's criterion or whoever there's a great deaf crocodile film a Swiss-French co-production that is also this wonderful dystopian sci-fi movie. I did the commentary for it. Unknown Man of Chandigore is the film that I'm thinking of. And definitely, if you like Time of Roses, it has some similar things going on while being much more like a cross between Alphaville and a more overt kind of satire of that kind of post-apocalyptic Cold War sci-fi, but it's beautiful. It doesn't have the same sort of 60s pop art vibe that Time of Roses does, but they would make a great double feature for sure. Also, culturally, Finland has a lot of very great accessible music and various kinds of art that anybody that looks at this might find interesting or Be interested to check out. I know that my contact with Finland has largely been through music. 
I, mean, I was involved with a high energy Nordic rock and roll scene at the end of the 90s and the early 2000s. And one of the main bands was, was a band called the Flaming Sideburns. And there's a lot of great accessible stuff that it's not just Lordy and Dintroll and all of the metal stuff going on over there. I was going to say, if you want some inaccessible Finnish music, there's a lot of great Finnish black metal. Well, there oh, is. Boy. Not oh, for yeah. everyone, though. <laughs> there, there's also a lot of great indie pop, a lot of rock and roll, a lot of that kind of stuff that that while it's using traditional British and American forms of music, it definitely has a Finnish personality to it. Thank you so much, guys, for coming on here. And before we take off for the evening, Sam, what are you working on these days? As always, too many things. I should plug for my Patreon. I'm doing, like I said, a Godard retrospective where I'm talking about every single one of his films chronologically. And hopefully I'll be finished with that before I die. But <laughs> right now I'm still in the 60s, getting towards the end of it. And I guess I should also plug, you know, Deaf Crocodile. Like I said, I've worked with them a lot, especially on some more obscure sci-fi and more obscure Eastern European and Soviet films. And they just do such great work, particularly when it comes to finding that kind of world cinema that no one seems to have heard of. Eric, what's been happening with you? Not a lot. I pop up on the Dig Me Out podcast occasionally, which is a 90s music podcast. And then I do a lot of like comic book stuff over on TikTok. My handle over there is iron09. That's I-R-E-N-Z-E-R-O. And then the numeral nine. I just thought your handle was Irene. No, it's iron, I-R-E-N. So there was a guy I met in college whose parents had named him iron, I-R-E-N, just spelled it phonetically. And so I started using that as my internet handle because it was something that nobody else used and it's easy to remember for me. So at some point, I started having to put the zero spelled out at the end. Wow. I would have just assumed that it was some sort of comic reference that I didn't get. No, not at all. You should start making up different sure, references for it. See if anyone calls you on Because there's a lot of iron ore up there, and that's how they say iron oh, up there. Oh, okay. Or you could go Irene Zero and choose. Yeah, I could. A, a lot of people of think it's that. Clones. So Lorenzo is the one that I get from some people. Oh, cause, okay. Because they're brain filling <laughs> in the letters. Okay, so I get to tell this story at the very end. I work for a retailer, national retailer. And one of the things I deal with is having to find things that are in a location in the receiving office. And I come into work one day and they've changed the whole naming scheme. And they have these stickers that say RCST receiving staging. And I look at it and I go, why do all these stickers say racist? And everyone looks at me and they're like, what are you talking about? And then one of the managers walks over, just starts laughing. Another manager walks over, just starts laughing. About six weeks later, that all goes away very quietly. Because <laughs> my brain fills in the letters. Yeah, and that's, sure. that's where people are like, Lorenzo, That's they're filling in the letters. That's fine. I'm very familiar with Lorenzo being named Mike White. It's very tough to hear your name when it's being called in a restaurant, but you can hear when somebody calls out for Lorenzo. So my brother's name is Stefan, which is not a standard American issue name. So when we go to a restaurant, he's always like, my name's Stan. There you go. Perfect. Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. 
Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. I'm